Hosea chapter 5, it's a continuation of what he started in chapter 4 with regard to the condemnation of the nation of Israel, but he includes Judah more and more in his prophetic statements against Israel, the northern ten tribes, but also against Judah as well, although the severity against Israel is very much more intense than it is with regard to the nation of Judah. It doesn't mean that Judah is not going to be punished, but we do know historically, and Hosea alludes to this, that they will indeed be punished for their sins also, but it will be to in a different scale for different reasons and at a different time. But again in chapter 5 and 6 we find both Israel and Judah being uh, spoken against uh, very, very severely by the prophet. Through the prophet, the Lord is speaking to them both that if they don't change uh, their ways, there is judgment coming. In fact, uh, with regard to Israel especially, that judgment has already been determined. And he tells us, remember in chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, verse 17, Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. God is saying, I'm done with them. They are not going to change. I am leaving my hand of protection, taking it away from them, and they will be the, uh, the recipients then of the judgment of God as a result of their rebellion. It reminds me very much of Romans chapter 1, and I mentioned that the last time we were together, where in verse 28, uh, the Lord says that he uh, leaves them over to their reprobate minds or the depravity that they have uh, entered into, and God gives them over to that. There's no way out. There's no escape from it. Judgment will come. Even though he does, in these passages, invite them to repent, his knowledge of what they are going to do is obviously very, very clear. They will not repent. Well, in chapter 5, again, he begins now to discuss that impending judgment, and he talks to the nation of Israel, the land of Israel, the priests of Israel, and the civil leaders of Israel. He says in verse 1 of chapter 5, Hear this, O priests, take heed, O house of Israel, give ear, O house of the king, for yours is the judgment, because you have been a snare to Mizpah and a net spread on Tabor. The revolters are deeply involved in slaughter. Though I rebuke them all, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you committed harlotry, and Israel is defiled. Now keep in mind, if you would, he mentions Israel, the northern ten tribes, very frequently. He also mentions that one tribe of Ephraim, almost as equally as often. And the thing that we need to understand is Ephraim is actually the tribe from which the nation was ruled. Uh, Ephraim was where they established their capital in Samaria. And it was from there because Ephraim was considered the wealthiest of the tribes, the most populous of the tribes, and even had more land than the rest of the tribes did in the northern tribes of Israel. And they were the prominent ones, and that's where uh, the judgment is going to fall on the government that is established in Ephraim over all of the ten tribes. 
So oftentimes you'll see Hosea referring to one or the other, or as it was in this case, both Israel and Ephraim, but they are one and the same in essence because Ephraim is the leader of the entire nation, as was Judah in the southern kingdom. Judah was over the Benjamites as well as the majority of Levitical priests who remained in that area. And uh, there were many other of the members of the various tribes who had migrated south into Judah just prior to the invasion of the Assyrians in 722 B.C. So all of the ten tribes were really in Judah assembled with very, very small numbers of the northern ten tribes, but they were there in Judah because they had migrated south to escape the Assyrian invasion that was coming their way. But in the time of Hosea, there was great prosperity. There was no indication at all that there was trouble brewing from the Assyrians. In fact, the king at the time that Hosea writes this was really very good friends with the Assyrian rulers and they were trading with them and they were doing a great deal of business with them uh, between those two nations. But that would soon change. And Assyria would become a very powerful nation and they would ultimately ride their forces into the nation of Israel and capture and disperse all of the people who remained. So here we have, again, the judgment of God speaking against the priests and the rulers, and he's making a very, very simple statement. From as far east as Mizpah, that's on the other side of the Jordan River, all the way to Mount Tabor on the west near the Mediterranean coast, that is going to be taken out, that entire region. And so now he's saying, Ephraim, you have committed harlotry. Israel is defiled. That's the reason. So here we have in verse 4 a continuation of this judgment of God being poured out according to the prophecy of Hosea where he says, They do not direct their deeds toward turning to their God, for the spirit of harlotry is in their midst. They could have turned, but they would not turn. Keep in mind that that is the judgment of God. It's not that they could not, because it was available to them. Mercy was available, but they would not receive it. There was no way that they were going to turn, and the people that were in that land were so bound by their harlotry in terms of their worship of other gods that they would not turn from that wicked state. And God is here again, judging them for that. The spirit of harlotry is in their midst, and they do not know the Lord. He says in verse 5, The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Therefore Israel and Ephraim stumbled in their iniquity. Judah also stumbles with them. So they are influencing the southern kingdom in their depravity. The people of Judah are watching them. The people of Judah are seeing that, hey, they are prosperous, and they're worshiping all these other gods. Why not let that happen down here? And there were many who were beginning to think such things. Many of them were being influenced by the, the influx of the northern ten tribes that were coming down into Judah and beginning to set up their homes there, and they brought all of their Baal worship with them. So Judah is being invaded slowly. Israel has already been 
very much involved in that idolatry. Piece by piece, little by little, Judah also is turning the corner toward depravity. They're not there yet, but they too will be judged according to the word of the Lord. Verse 6 says, With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. They have dealt treacherously with the Lord, for they have begotten pagan children. Now a new moon shall devour them and their heritage. He's reminding them that because they would not turn to the Lord, he will not come back to help them. He will not do anything to encourage them anymore to turn from their path that they have chosen. They've dealt treacherously with the Lord. They've begotten pagan children. That's really a reminder through Hosea of what Hosea was asked by the Lord to do, to marry this woman Gomer, and through his marriage, he would become an example to the nation of Israel. And two of the three children that are born in that relationship between Gomer and Hosea were illegitimate children. Lo Ruhama and Lo Ami were both illegitimate children. And remember the word Lo Rohama means no mercy, no compassion. And the, the, the word Lo Ami, the other child, not my people. So there's a very, very specific message that God was speaking through that illegitimacy. And here he's reminding them of their pagan children. And he goes on to say in verse 8, Warning, blow the trumpet, blow the ram's horn in Gibeah, blow the trumpet in Ramah. He's saying, this is what you're going to be doing. You're going to be assembling the people to come against the onslaught of the enemy. But it won't be a successful venture. He says in the latter part of verse 8, Cry aloud, O beth Look behind you, O Benjamin. Even part of the land of Benjamin, which had been occupied by the northern tribes of Israel, would be implicated in this terrible terrible invasion of the Assyrian army. He says in verse 9, Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. And it certainly was. The Assyrians came in with great numbers of soldiers and they wiped out the entire region. They took everything and destroyed all the cities. They were a vicious people. And they came and they were just simply brutal and perhaps some of the most brutal people of all the various kingdoms that existed from the time of Egypt until the time of the Babylonian Empire. These people were so, so terribly bad that when the invasion had begun, there were many villages in Israel that ended up slaughtering themselves, committing mass suicide to prevent the Assyrians from being able to do the kinds of things that they did with the people that they were able to conquer. It was so terrible an experience that some of the various villages in, in Israel did not want anything to do with that. And again, they allowed themselves to be slaughtered among themselves so that the Assyrians couldn't do that. Such a terrible time as this. That's the reason why in the book of Jonah, we see... Jonah, when God spoke to Jonah and said, I want you to go to Nineveh, remember Jonah went in the opposite direction? Well, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. 
And although this writing of Jonah would have been much after the Assyrian invasion of Israel, Jonah knew that the Assyrians were such a terrible people and he wanted nothing to do with them. And he figured that if he were to go to Nineveh as a prophet of God, that implied that God would have mercy on the Ninevites and allow them to be delivered from all of the atrocities that they were committing and God would forgive them. And Jonah wanted no part of that. And so Jonah went the other direction as a result of his hatred for the people of Assyria and the capital of Nineveh. Well, back to Hezekiah, or rather Hosea, the latter part of verse 9, after he says, Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke, he says, among the tribes of Israel, I will make known what is sure. In other words, it shall come to pass. There's no question when God speaks about some event, it is going to happen. He is always 100% accurate. We have so-called prophets that have been known throughout the history of mankind. People like Nostradamus, who really gets a lot of uh, press these days. Um, he himself had said, no, I'm not a prophet, but everybody says he's the greatest prophet the world has ever known. Well, they don't know a thing. When the world talks about prophets, they talk in such vagaries and none of those things that have been spoken of by these purported prophets are based upon anything that God had involved himself with. So keep in mind, yes, there are those that are considered to be prophets even in our day, but be very, very careful when you listen to any of them because it is no doubt in my mind, unless it agrees with the word of God, that those prophets are false prophets. And in the Old Testament, I wish it were true today, false prophets then were stoned. Well, perhaps some of the false prophets today get stoned, but that's a different kind of stoning altogether. Well, verse 10 in chapter 5 of Hosea continues this statement after statement of the judgment of God against Israel and also against Judah. And he says in verse 10, the princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark or the borders, the stones between one property and another. You know, that was something that the Lord condemned in the Old Testament. In the book of Deuteronomy, in chapters 26 and 27, we see several things that the Lord establishes as laws in the nation of Israel that they needed to be very, very careful not to disobey. And one of those was the rule that God made with regard to the moving of boundaries. You're not to take your neighbor's boundary and move it closer onto your property or away from your property onto his property to give yourself more land. That is absolutely wrong. It is distasteful and abomination to the Lord and it was worthy of severe judgment by the Lord if it was to be found. Well, that's what the princes of Judah said they are like. It says they are like those who remove a landmark. They're sneaky. They're a bunch of very, very deceitful people that will try to get away with anything if they can. That's a very, very terrible judgment from the Lord. And hopefully, that's not something that we would be very likely to experience in our day. But it can, and I believe it probably does. There's much thievery going on in the world around us. 
there are people who are taking advantage of the fact that the police departments all around our country are not willing to take a stand, partly because of fear of retribution, and partly because they don't have the support of the masses or the government. It's a terrible, shameful thing that we're seeing as more and more people take advantage of a godless society where you can go into a store in large numbers of bands of people and break through the glass of the store frontage and take anything you want without any consequence. It's a shameful thing that we're seeing happening in our country. Well, that's the kind of thing that was happening apparently in Judah as well. Perhaps not to that extent and not in that same way. But that's the judgment that is being meted out here because of the people of Judah's being like those who remove a landmark. He says, I will pour out my wrath on them like water. And then he goes back in verse 11 to speak of Ephraim. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by human precept. Therefore, I will be to Ephraim like a moth and to the house of Judah like rottenness. In both cases, a moth is going to eat all of the clothing, all of the various cloths that are precious to them, the needful for them. And in the house of Judah, rottenness, like rotten to the bones kind of rottenness. Therefore, he will be to Ephraim like a moth. He'll eat them away slowly but surely because they wanted to do nothing and have nothing to do with their God. Ephraim willingly walked by human precept instead of the precepts of God, the judgments of God, the stature and the statements of God, the, the beautiful commands of God that were precious in the sight of David and other righteous men who followed after the heart of David. But they would not do it in Ephraim. And God is judging them for that. Verse 13 says, When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jareb. Yet he cannot cure you, nor heal you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear them and go away. I will take them away, and no one shall rescue them. God is saying, I've had enough. I'm departing. I'm taking my hand of blessing away from them. They will not be my people any longer. And he's extending this terrible judgment to not only Ephraim, Israel, but to Judah as well. Although the judgment in Judah will not take place for another 125 or so years after the nation of Israel is judged, the judgment still is certain because God is saying this is going to happen. They're going down the same kind of path that Israel had gone down. And although Judah had been spared because of David, for David's sake, there would come a time when even that would be coming to an end. The last verse of chapter 5, a very interesting verse. Well, verse 14 said, I even I will tear them and go away, and I will take them away, and no one shall rescue. Then in verse 15 he says this, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction they will earnestly seek me. So the question arises, did this already happen? And the answer to that question is, no it has not. They did not return to him. They never did. 
but they will. And there's a certainty in that, st- in that statement, excuse me, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their offense. Well, when then will that happen? Well, we find that taking place according to Zechariah in chapter 12. I'd like you to turn there with me. Zechariah chapter 12, near the Old Testament's end, just before Malachi. Zechariah 12.10 says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at Hadad Rimon in the place or the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn, every family by itself. The families will all, verse 12, or verse 14 says, all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. So here back in Hosea, chapter 5, verse 15, He's talking about them afflicting their souls. And that is prophesied by Zechariah. When will that take place? When the Lord sets foot on Mount Zion. Because Zechariah in chapter 12 talks about the fact that the Lord is coming back and they will look upon him whom they have pierced. Take a note of that again, verse 10 of chapter 12 in Zechariah, because it's really a very interesting statement that is being made. It says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Now, who is speaking here? Well, if you go back to the previous verses, it tells them that it is the Lord, Jehovah God, speaking. He says, I will pour on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. That's Jehovah. That is the Almighty God speaking. And then it says, then they will look on me, whom they pierced. Now, you have to ask the question, when indeed did the Jews pierce Jehovah God? And of course, the answer is, Jesus was pierced by the Jews through the Roman governments on the day he was crucified. Jesus is being referred to here as Jehovah God. Give that to an Orthodox Jew and he would not know what to do with it. Show that to a Jehovah's Witness and they do not have an answer as to what that actually means. But it's very clear. The Lord God is speaking about the Son of God in that statement. There's no doubt that that is a reference to Jesus Christ. Going back again now to Hosea and looking now at chapter 6, a continuation of what has been said, but he is here asking again, will you consider turning back to God? A call to repentance. He says, come and let us return to the Lord, for he is torn but he will heal us. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. But is is this Hosea's day or is this at a later date? Well, if what has just been spoken in verse 1 of chapter 6 
is a follow-up of what was spoken of in verse 15 of chapter 5, that it implies that that is indeed a reference to the last days, and verse 1 of chapter 6 is what they will say in response to his coming again, and they will indeed repent. They will turn to him. This is the nation of Israel saying, Come and let us return to the Lord, for he is torn, but he will heal us. And yes, he indeed will heal them. It says, He is stricken, but he will bind us up. That has to be at the end of time. Now take note again of verse 2, because it also is a very, very significant verse. It says there, After two days he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Now, what does Hosea mean by this? Well, it's an interesting statement. He's saying, after two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up. Now, if you look at Peter's writings, in Second Peter, we find that Peter says that as far as the Lord is concerned, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. Now, of course, Peter is referring to a passage in one of the Psalms that speaks of that, but Peter uses that as an example of the timelessness of the Lord. But it's interesting that he uses that connection. A day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. Now, ancient Jewish scribes used to make the statement that they believed that the earth is only about 6,000 years old. In fact, if you look at the Hebrew calendar, you'll find that the Hebrew calendar starts at our calendar's dating uh, of around 3600 or so B.C. And they continue in their Orthodox calendar, of the Jewish calendar, to count off the years from what they say is the beginning of man's history when Adam was created. And that this period of time is recognized by the Jewish calendar as the time of man on the earth, almost completed and very, very soon, depending on who you listen to, to be coming to an end of 6,000 years. And their argument in that ancient description of the number of years is also connecting a thousand years with a single day, or a day with a thousand years. And what they are doing is they're saying that there will be six days that men will be on the earth, and then there will be a seventh day of rest, equal to the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest by the Lord. Now, if that has any truth, what Hosea is saying here is that on the first two days, after two days, he will revive us. After two days, starting when? When they rejected him. That's perhaps something that we as a church can look at with a very, very safe conclusion, I believe, that this could be a reference to the time when Jesus was crucified and some 2,000 years later, on the third day, he will establish his millennial kingdom. It fits into this prophecy very, very well. Whether it's accurate, whether it's correct to assume such things, I really can't say. There are many theologians who believe that to be the case. And if it is, 
we're right around the corner from the millennial reign of Christ because he's been almost 2,000 years since he was crucified. If you believe the calendar calculations of the men from England who was knighted for, the, for this work, Sir Robert Anderson, Jesus was crucified in April of 32 A.D. So we're not too awfully far from that. Subtract seven years from 32, and you get, well, 25. 2025, is that the year that the tribulation will begin? Please don't ask that question. None of us knows. But it really is compelling when you look at this passage that we've just looked at here and make that kind of connecting of the dots, uh, both from a Jewish perspective and also from Peter's words with regard to a day being as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Moving on in chapter 6, verse 3, we said, he says, Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and the former rain, to the earth. That's an amazing statement again. When is this going to happen? It hasn't happened yet. But again, it is a fulfillment that is yet to happen, I believe, when the Lord comes and sets his feet upon Mount Zion and begins his reign. But there's still an issue in Hosea's day, they will not turn. And Hosea goes back to his present state of condemnation against his people. Verse 4 says, O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew it goes away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And your judgments are like light that goes forth. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. God is just simply saying, you're an impenitent people. Why should I even bother with you? What shall I do for you or do to you? Your faithfulness is like a morning cloud. It's here one moment and gone the next. Like the early dew, it just simply vanishes away. You are not a faithful people. And therefore, because you're not a faithful people, I have, though warning you by the many prophets that I have sent your way, they have not been listened to. And because you would not listen to your prophets that I have sent, the judgments that are coming are indeed going to come in their time. Because he says, I don't desire sacrifices. I desire mercy. And by the way, Jesus quoted that very passage when he was arguing with the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees in Jerusalem. He had said, don't you remember reading these words, I desire mercy and sacrifice, or rather not sacrifice? So Jesus was saying to them, and God is saying to his people, wake up. It's not about the offering of sacrifices. Those sacrifices are meaningless if there's no faith involved, if there's no love of God involved. And they were indeed offering sacrifices. They were still offering sacrifices, they said, to their God. They believed in Jehovah God, but they also believed in all the bales of the nations of the people around them. And so they mingled all the other traditions of the other gods with their worship of the one true God. And God is judging them for that. Both in Judah and in Israel, this is happening. 
Assyria is soon to come against the nation of Israel. Just a few more years after this writing, in 722, Israel will be invaded by Assyria. Assyrian forces will continue southward. They'll enter into Judah. They'll circle around the city of Jerusalem. They will begin a siege of the city of Jerusalem during Hezekiah's reign. And we read in the book of Isaiah the results of that siege. They will not even shoot one single arrow into the city of Jerusalem. And that was exactly what did take place. An angel of the Lord completely destroyed that Assyrian army. And Judah was spared. But only for another 126 years. And then finally the judgment fell. But not by the Assyrians. Instead, in that day, by the Babylonians. But judgment was about to fall on both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom because they would not turn. God says, what do I have to do with you? Now I think about our nation. Our state of Maine right now uh, is considering today was a day that the Judiciary Committee was having their work session to discuss LD-1619, a law that, if passed, will allow abortion up till the very last day of pregnancy, until the ninth month, until the baby is actually born. There is no way that I think God will overlook such a travesty as this. God says, the life is in the blood, and blood is shed, and when blood is shed, God takes notice. He takes notice of every single born, baby born or not born. If every child in the womb is taken before they are able to take their first breath, God knows each one. If it will eventually, I think, go to the state legislature. And it's very likely that that law will indeed pass. The work session is to determine whether they should send a recommendation to the legislature to either not pass the bill or to pass the bill. It's heavily weighted by Democrats. And it is, instead of being considered, uh, weighed against all of the opposition that was very, very against this particular bill, it's not likely to be stopped. Unless God does a miracle. And I'm praying for a miracle of miracles with regard to this bill. I'm praying that the Lord will indeed turn hearts away from such a terrible decision as what they are considering. It's not impossible. With God, all things are possible. But we must leave it in His hands. If it does get passed, it's a terrible, terrible thing for our state, for our nation. And I believe the judgment of God will fall if not for that reason, for very, very many other reasons that all of us know and can count. And they are increasing more and more each day. Oh, how sad a day this is for us as a people. Because we once were a nation under God, but we can't say that any longer. And neither could they. They could not say that they were a nation under God. And God says, I will judge you for that which you have done. God have mercy. Well, continuing on in chapter 6, verse 7 says, But like men they transgressed the covenant. 
There they dealt treacherously with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers and defiled with blood. Augusta is a city of evildoers and defiled with blood. Verse 9 says, As bands of robbers lie in wait for a man, so the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they commit lewdness. Look at what he's saying. See what God says are the consequences of such actions. He says in verse 10, I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is harlotry of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. Finally, the last verse, O Judah, a harvest is appointed for you when I return the captives of my people. See what God is saying? He's saying, they have done such horrific things. They have done such heinous things. Such an abominable, abominable thing is being done in the nation, in Judah, as well as in Israel. And yet, in spite of that, though God will indeed judge all of that, God will also extend His mercy. That's what verse 11 is all about. Read it again carefully. He says, O Judah, a harvest is appointed for you when I return the captives of my people. When does that take place? Again, that is a last day's statement. It will happen at the end of the tribulation period once God has completely finished his judging work against the nation of Israel and against the Gentiles in that day that is yet future. Then he will set his feet upon Mount Zion. He will come and he will establish the nation of the Jews once again with Jerusalem as their capital and Jesus as their king. And in Zechariah chapter 10, the Lord describes again his mercy and his grace being outpoured against, or for that people, rather, that have been such a terrible, terrible, wicked nation. He says in chapter 10, Zechariah, verse 6, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. Another reference, of, by the way, of the northern ten tribes. Joseph was the father of Ephraim. I will bring them back because I have mercy on them. He had scattered them. In 70 AD, they were indeed scattered, and everybody thought for the very last time. But we've been told in the Word of God that they will be returning to the land. Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37 spoke of such a return. And he has done that. 1948, again, the birth of the nation of Israel. We've seen that. But we haven't seen the spiritual revival of the nation of Israel. This is going to happen in that last day when they behold him, as we read earlier in chapter 12, when they look upon him whom they have pierced. But here in chapter 12, he's talking about the fact that he's bringing them back into the land and he will save them. He says, I will bring them back again in verse 6, because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not cast them aside. He will have cast them aside, but he's letting them come back into the land. Why? He says at the end of verse 6, For I am the Lord their God, and I will hear them. Those of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their heart shall rejoice as with wine. Yes, their children shall see it and be glad. 
Their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them, for I will redeem them, and they shall increase as they once increased. They once were a proud and very prosperous and great population of people in the land. That land was taken, and it was destroyed by the Assyrians. They were distributed into the many, many countries of the the Assyrian Empire, but they will be brought back into the land. That's the promise of God's Word. That is going to happen again in the last days. Lastly, in verse 9 of Zechariah chapter 10, I'll read this last verse and then we'll close. I will sow them among the peoples, and they shall remember me in far countries. They shall live together with their children, and they shall return. They were distributed among the nations, but they shall be brought back into the land. Do you see what God is now already doing in the world today? It is partly a fulfillment of what God has spoken here in Hosea, also in Ezekiel, also in other places in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. They will be brought back into the land. They will be once again prosperous. They will once again recognize Him as their Lord, and He will reign over them as their King in Jerusalem on the throne of David, because that's what the Word of God says. Oh, what a glorious promise this is to the people of of Israel and Judah and also to us. We, the church, have been blessed because we see these things. We are part of what is being done to prepare this nation of Israel for that inevitable return of the Lord. We have a great privilege, my friends, as the church of Jesus Christ. Let us stand fast until the day that he takes us out of this place and then turns his heart once again to the people that he calls his own. God bless you. Grace and peace.